Well, let's uh, begin this morning by reading our text. We're in Matthew chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 34 into chapter 10 and, and verse 5. We, we might kind of look a little bit again at 10, 1 to 5, just kind of briefly next week as well. This, these verses are kind of a, a transition between two sections of the, of the book of Matthew, kind of the first section, chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, all the way to the end of chapter 9, kind of deals with Jesus' authority, and then chapter 10, really all the way to the end of chapter 12, is kind of the next section. We have the next discourse in Matthew in chapter 10, and, um, and then a, a bit of a narrative about Jesus' rejection but, but our text is kind of right in between these two and kind of summarizes what we've just seen and then leads us and transitions us into what we're going to have in 10, 11, and 12. But let's read our text, Matthew 9, starting at verse 35. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12, Jesus sent out instructing them, and we'll just stop right there. Um, These are some of the greatest verses on ministry in the Bible. Here we see the ministry of our Lord as well as his method in, in proclaiming that ministry and expanding that ministry through his disciples. We see here what Jesus did. We see what motivated Jesus, why he did what he did, and then we see him begin to include his disciples in his his ministry. He kind of passed the torch to them. He invites them into his concern for the people, and he commissions them to go and minister as he ministered. To follow Jesus means to take up his mission and his ministry. And this is important, and I, and I don't think we think about this enough. You know, we, we often think of following Jesus in the sense of being like him. We, we think of it as following his moral, moral character, following his godliness. We talk about being conformed into his image, or being sanctified, or being made holy. We talk about putting off sin and being more and more like Christ in our lives, and, and that's all good, and, and that's right. Being a disciple does mean all that. We, we should be growing to be like Christ. That's part of what, what this whole thing is. But being a disciple means more than just following Christ's character. It also means taking on his mission. In fact, taking on his character actually necessitates taking on his mission. Because if I care about people the way that Jesus cared... I must then minister to people the way that Jesus ministered. And so if we are Jesus' disciples, that means we are his learners. We we learn from him, we follow him, we 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 learn from him, we we're to become like him. We're to care in the way that he cared. We're to live the way that he lived. We're to see in the way that he saw, and we're to minister like he ministered. And these things are for all of us. If, if you believe in Jesus, if, if you've come to him for salvation, 
If you are a Christian, then you are a disciple. And actually, I, I just even want to just, I want you to see this with your own eyes here. Go to Acts chapter 11. Because here we see that if we are a Christian, we are a disciple. Look at just, we just look at Acts 11.26 and we'll just kind of go about halfway through that verse. It's just a very simple little thing that Luke adds there, but he says in Acts 11.26, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And so if you're a Christian, you are a disciple. A Christian is someone who trusts in their, trusts their whole self to Jesus Christ, right? A Christian is somebody who follows Jesus, somebody who loves Jesus, somebody who lives their lives for Him. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so discipleship is not some kind of advanced level of Christianity. Discipleship is Christianity. And this passage in Matthew, and we can kind of go back to Matthew here if you want then, this passage in Matthew shows us in a remarkable way who Jesus was and what he did and what we should do as his disciples, how we should live our lives. This passage gives us insight into our ministry and our mission as disciples of Jesus Christ. The things we learn here about Jesus and his mission it's really for all of us, but it especially, I think, is going to apply to, to people who are maybe even especially called to ministry. But every one of us, every Christian is a disciple, and every disciple is also called to minister into the way, in the ways that God has gifted him or her. And so we're all called to be laborers in the harvest that the Lord shows us in this passage, we're all to participate in God's work of reaching lost people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and helping them to grow to be more like Christ in every way. And it, by every way, I mean in our character and in our actions, in our life, in our, in taking on the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, this text is especially applicable to pastors and elders, but really it's for all of us, for every single Christian. And we're going to look at it then, and, and what we're going to see as we kind of look through this is we're going to see three aspects of Jesus' ministry. Three, three aspects of his ministry, and they're a pattern for our ministry. And so we see what Jesus does, and then we're called to emulate and imitate the same thing. So three aspects of Jesus' ministry as a pattern for our ministry. And so we'll see, first of all, just kind of generally, we'll see Jesus' ministry, we'll see what Jesus did. And then secondly, we're going to see Jesus's motivation and we're going to see here the compassion of the Lord for the people that were around him. And then third, we'll see Jesus's method in verses 37 to the end of chapter uh, 10, chapter 10, verse five. We'll see how Jesus worked to, to get his disciples involved in the work that he was doing. So he, he taught his disciples and then they were to go and, and teach and do what he was already doing. So Jesus' ministry, Jesus' motivation, and then thirdly, Jesus' method. So let's see number one, Jesus' ministry. And we see this in verse 35. Verse 35 is a a summary of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, but it also serves as a guide to what we should be doing. Now before we look at verse 35 again, I want you to go back to Matthew chapter 4. And I want you to just kind of see this here. Matthew 4, we start reading in verse 17. Matthew 4, 17 says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. So Jesus preached a message of repentance. He urged people to turn from sin. 
He urged them to forsake their sin and, and turn around and come to God. And the two brothers, Simon and Andrew, they did just that. They would have repented, turned away from their sin, and followed Jesus. Jesus called them to follow him, and they did that. They repented, and they followed. And in their case, they literally followed Jesus from place to place throughout Galilee, but they also became followers of his teaching and of his lifestyle. That's what it means to be a disciple. Jesus' promise to them is, is in verse 19 there again. It says, he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so if we can kind of think of this in steps, step one involves turning away from sin. And that leads to step two. Step two is then following Jesus Christ, following his lifestyle, following his teaching, learning from him. So turning from sin, following Jesus, and following Jesus involves faith, trusting him, knowing him, becoming a disciple of his. And then step three, Jesus is then going to make these people, these fishermen, into fishers of men. So there's going to be a a transforming work of Christ in their lives that's going to make them effective in reaching others and ministering to others for the gospel. So he's going to train them and he's going to equip them to reach others just as he did for them, right? He reached them and then he's going to make them into fishers of other men. Jesus reaches men and women with the gospel and then he works in those people to use them to reach others. Now before we leave here, Matthew 4, uh, look at verse 23 there and it's, it's almost word for word as what we see in chapter 9, verse 35, the verse we're looking at. So Matthew 4.23, it says, And he, and that, that he there is Jesus, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now look over at verse 35, and you might want to just keep your finger there if you want to kind of go back and forth. Look at the, the similarity there. Verse, chapter 9, verse 35. Matthew 9, 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. The only differences between those two verses are he in, in Matthew 4.23 is Jesus in Matthew 9.35. All Galilee in 4.23 is all the cities and villages in 9.35. And that, that probably means all the cities and villages in Galilee. And then 4.23 has among the people, which is left out in 9.35. And both of these are summaries of Jesus's ministry, almost word for word summaries of what he did and how he did it. And, and these two kind of parallel sections kind of put brackets around chapters five to nine and the, where, where we saw the, the Sermon on the Mount that showed us Jesus's teaching and preaching. And then remember chapters eight and nine showed us Jesus's healing ministry. And so we saw his teaching, his proclaiming, and then we saw his miracles. And so that, that kind of, th- th- these two verses that are parallel just put, put brackets around that and summarize again for us that whole ministry of Jesus. And together, those section, that whole section five, from chapter five to chapter nine, um, showed us Jesus's authority in his teaching and in his miracles. Jesus had authority in his teaching. Jesus had authority in his miracles. And that authority in turn shows us that Jesus is God and that he's God the Son in human flesh. Jesus' authority reveals Jesus' identity. In chapter 4.23, that summary verse gave us a preview of what Jesus was about to do or what we were about to see him do. And it was an introduction to everything that we would see. But now in 9.35, these same words not only conclude what we've seen, but they also present what Jesus will get his disciples to do. And so they kind of give us, again, a pattern for our own ministry. Jesus is going to pass his ministry on to the 12. And then eventually, through thousands of years of church history, this task of, of what Jesus has called his disciples to do has now fallen 
on our shoulders, and now we are to do this same thing. Now, Jesus' ministry in verse 35 is divided into three parts. He went throughout all the cities and villages of Galilee, and he did three things. First thing he did is teaching and instructing, teaching in their synagogues. So teaching and instructing. Now, this word there, translated teaching, is just the common word for teaching, and it includes both formal and informal teaching. In the synagogue, that would have been a more formal setting, but kind of following through the the countryside with his disciples, that would have been more informal teaching. But Jesus, his ministry consists of teaching the people. Jesus taught the people. That was his ministry. He taught them God's word. He taught them doctrine. He taught them doctrine. The word doctrine is just the the noun form of the word teaching. So Jesus taught doctrine. There's a, a content of something that he taught, and we could just call that teaching. We could call that doctrine. Teaching is the action, and doctrine or teaching is the the content. It's it refers to what is taught, and so a biblical Christ-like ministry is a teaching ministry. I think that's really important to understand. A biblical Christ-like ministry is a teaching ministry. You should be learning. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you should be learning. And if you aren't learning, perhaps it's because you're not being taught. Now, there's there's other reasons why you might not be learning, but I think chief among them in, 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 our, in our world today is that there's not very much teaching going on. The early church in Acts 2.42, a really important passage there, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. A teaching ministry is a compassionate ministry because God's people need to know who their God is. They need to know what pleases Him, how to do what pleases Him. They, They need to know why they should do those things. They need to know how to be motivated to do those things. There's all kinds of things that we need to know if we're going to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus taught, and our ministry is to be a teaching ministry as well. We're to teach others the truth of God's word. But the second thing that Jesus did there is he went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Proclaiming is a powerful word. The, the, the word in the original, it's a very powerful word. It was the task of the herald to make an official proclamation. So this is, this is heralding, literally heralding. They were, they were to act, Jesus acted like a herald making official proclamations. To herald was a, a public notice proclaimed aloud by an official person appointed to the position of a herald. And so if a king had a message to get across, he would appoint a herald. That herald would would go into the town, blow a trumpet or something, get everyone's attention, and then give the exact message of the king to the people in like a, a public proclamation of what the king said. And so this one word encapsulates the entire ministry of preaching. Preachers are heralds of the king. We represent Jesus and we represent the triune God to the people. And we speak his message. We don't speak anything other than what he says. That's what a herald does. They speak the message from the king. And so heralds represent the the king. They represent the Lord to the public and proclaim his word. And a herald would just do it exactly what the, what the king said. And so we do it boldly. We're to do it clearly so that people can understand. We're to do it without fear of the public because the king's authority is with us as we make this proclamation. And we do it because we are heralds of the king and of his message. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus proclaimed the gospel. He heralded the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. Now I understand this gospel of the kingdom that there was a legitimate offer of the kingdom to Israel on the basis of their repentance. 
The kingdom was near because the king was there and Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so there was a a, a legitimate offer of the gospel of the kingdom to the people of Israel in Jesus' day. Others might see it a little bit differently and they would, they would see this as an offer to enter into the kingdom or to become a citizen of the kingdom or just to become saved. But either way, the message was good news. It was a gospel message. Good news for everyone who would repent of their sin and trust in Christ. Good news of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And this message, this gospel message is now our message. We're to proclaim the good news that through faith in Jesus Christ, you can have all your sins forgiven and you can be reconciled to God. You can be made right with the holy God. And one day you can enter his kingdom and live in his presence forever. Now, this good news is only for sinners who come to see their sin and who recognize that they have sinned against the holy God and that they are, in fact, sinners. See, we need to repent not only of our sins, our, our iniquities that we have committed, but we also need to repent of our nature, that we are sinners. We need to see that we are sinners and that our very nature is wrong. There's something fundamentally wrong with us And we turn from that to Jesus Christ and ask him to fix us and reconcile us to God. Now, there's a lot more that could be said about the gospel, but what I want to emphasize is that we are to publicly proclaim it. We herald this good news. We speak it publicly and we speak it privately as representatives of our king. That's what Jesus did. That was, this is the summary of Jesus's ministry. He heralded the gospel And we also must do that as well. Now, the third aspect of Jesus's ministry was, if you look again at verse 35, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Jesus had authority over sickness and death. We saw him cast out demons. We saw him work other miracles. And this authority was passed on to his disciples, to the twelve who became the apostles. And you see that, just look again at chapter 10 and verse 1. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority, just like he had authority, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Now we've talked already about the purpose of these miracles and healings. They They proved who Jesus was. They proved that he was the Messiah, the Christ. And then they proved that the apostles were the true representatives of the Messiah. As Jesus' representatives, they were largely responsible then, these apostles, for recording the message of the new covenant, the message of the New Testament that we have in our Bibles today. Now, this aspect of Jesus' ministry, this healing ministry, was not handed down to us. It was handed down to the apostles, but it's not handed down to us so much, except for the fact that, that we are to use the word of God that the apostles wrote to show the world who Jesus is. Now that, now that we have this revelation in the New Testament, we're to use this to show the world who Jesus is. And so once Jesus was known as the Messiah and his disciples recorded the books of the New Testament, there was no longer a need for these signs and wonders to continue. And so they ceased, as, as well as the gift of apostleship ceased, sometime after the New Testament was written, sometime after the last apostle died. And you can even see that just even reading through the book of Acts, you can see that the miracles and the signs and wonders already start to wane by the end of the book of Acts. But I'm not going to really go into that much more than that. But but the, the healing ministry of Jesus was passed on to the apostles, but then it wasn't doesn't seem to have been passed on to other generations of Christians, except again that we're to proclaim Jesus as the Messiah and we're to prove it from the word of God that the apostles wrote. And so all of that, the, the teaching, the, the proclaiming, and the healing in that sense, that all of that was Jesus' ministry 
And it becomes our ministry as well. We are to teach to disciples to observe everything that Jesus commanded. That's part of the Great Commission. Make disciples and teach them everything that Jesus commanded. Not only teach them everything, but teach them to observe everything that he commanded. Teach them to live it out in their actual lives. We're to preach the gospel unapologetically and boldly declare the message of salvation. And we're to preach and teach and convince the world that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, God in human flesh. Now, the second aspect of Jesus's ministry then, that was the first one, his ministry. Now, the second aspect is um, Jesus's motivation in verse 36. Let's see Jesus' motivation. And this is as well to be a pattern for our ministry. So verse 36 says, when, And when he, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now the first thing that, that we should notice there is that Jesus saw the crowds. He saw the crowds. He saw the people. In, in other words, he noticed them. Noticing people is the first step in a compassionate ministry. The scribes and the Pharisees, by contrast, they didn't see the people. But Jesus did. Jesus saw the crowds. And when he saw them, he had compassion for them. The Legacy Standard Bible translates this little first part. And seeing the crowds, he felt compassion for them or the new king james but when he saw the multitudes he was moved with compassion for them that word translated compassion means to have pity to show mercy to feel sympathy to have compassion or to feel compassion it comes from a word that referred to the inward parts the inward parts in the in the ancient mind the uh the gut the spleen, you know, you know, I had to actually look up to where some of these things were, but the gut, the spleen, the bowels, the kidneys, they were seen as the seat of emotion. That was where the emotion happened. And so this is the, this is your gut, your spleen. And, and if you think about it, the, the feelings are in your stomach, right? You get anxious, you get nervous, you know, you feel it in your stomach. If, if it gets too extreme, you might feel it in the bowels, um, passion or anger maybe it feels a a little bit higher up in here or something but i think the ancient people had it right the idea then is that jesus felt for the crowd he he saw the crowd and he and he felt sympathy for them he felt compassion for them he felt emotion for the people that he saw one commentator translated his heart went out which is kind of how we might say it today that his heart went out to the people that he saw now tomorrow, as you know, it's Valentine's Day. And my professor in biblical counseling and seminary, Dr. John Street, this is Dr. John Street that's saying this part. He used to say, if, if you want to be biblical tomorrow, you tell your wife you love her with all your bowels. If you want to be really biblical and look her in the eyes and say, honey, when I think about you, my gut gets queasy. Or he would say, sometimes you make my liver quiver. Um, which I think kind of has a nice rhyme. Now, I would recommend that if you're going to be biblical, if you're going to be that biblical, you got to first take some time to explain the ancient understanding of the bowels as the seat of the emotion, or it might not go so well for you. But uh, that's, uh, anyways, that's uh, that was for free. Um, Jesus, though, as we think about him, he he feels for the crowd. There's a there's a a gut reaction as he looks out on the crowd. And the reason for his compassion was because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That word there, harassed, means they were weary, harassed, troubled, bothered, annoyed. The next word translated helpless means thrown down. Um, it, it literally just means like down, helpless, down, maybe confused, Often that word there has a violent connotation, like to throw something down with force. But, but here it more likely means like downcast or helpless. 
And you can kind of picture a sheep that's wounded and torn and, and, and because it's been harassed, maybe by thorns, maybe by a, a wolf or something, and the, the sheep is now wounded and laying down and there's no shepherd to help this sheep get back up. That's the picture that Jesus saw when he looked on the crowds. And scripture often uses this picture of a, she, uh, of a, a sheep without a shepherd. God himself is the ultimate shepherd of his people, but he, he works through under shepherds. He works through other leaders who he calls and appoints to shepherd his people. And in Israel, these shepherds were priests and kings and other leaders among the people. And these shepherds were supposed to watch over the sheep. They were to, to watch over God's people and, and care for them, protect them. In Ezekiel chapter 34, these shepherds instead, they hurt the sheep and, the, and, and they did it themselves. They, they fed on the sheep even and they allowed them to be scattered. And then being scattered, the, um, the sheep became food for the wild beasts. And later in that same chapter, Yahweh says that he will send the Messiah as the shepherd for his people because the shepherds of Israel failed. And so Yahweh is the shepherd and the Messiah is the shepherd of his people. Jesus called himself in John chapter 10, the good shepherd. And in Ezekiel 34 verse 10, it says this, it says, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep, because these shepherds were acting wickedly and they weren't caring for the sheep, God is now against the shepherds and he's going to require the sheep at their hand. In other words, he's going to judge them for the way that they have mistreated his sheep. Jeremiah 23 verse 1 says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away. You have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. That was Jeremiah 23, 1-3. The Lord takes it very seriously when shepherds mistreat God's people, when they mistreat his people. Shepherds should be like the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, and care for the sheep in the way that Jesus did. Again, Jesus taught the sheep and he proclaimed the gospel to the sheep. That is, that is good shepherding in the way that Jesus did. Jeremiah 3 verse 15 says this, and I will give you shepherds after my own heart. And you could say, well, what are these shepherds going to do? The rest of the verse says, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Shepherds after God's own heart feed the sheep with knowledge and understanding. They teach and proclaim the message that God has for the people. Shepherds are called to feed the sheep, to teach God's word, and to model it for the people, to, to lead the living of it for the people. A true shepherd grieves to see people like sheep without a shepherd. People are harassed and downcast when they don't understand the scriptures, when they don't know what God has told them, when they don't know who God is and how they're supposed to live for him. And so we need preaching and teaching and leadership that models a Christ-like life. We need shepherds who care enough to call out sin. We need shepherds who care enough to study 2 Timothy 2.15, to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth. We need shepherds who have compassion for the people in the way that Jesus had compassion for the people. He saw the people. He, he knew that they needed shepherds. Now, I called this section Jesus' motivation, but again, it wasn't his only motivation, but it, it was a motivation for him in his ministry. The love for people moved Jesus to action. In fact, whenever you see that word compassion in Scripture, it, it always involves an emotional response that then leads to action. And so there's the, the, the gut response, but then it actually, you do something to alleviate the situation. That's the compassion and sympathy that Jesus had. 
And for us as well, compassion should motivate our ministry to people. We need to see people. We need to care for them and and have sympathy that moves us to act on their behalf and to act biblically. The action that is required for, for when we care for people is teaching them, preaching the gospel, proclaiming it, not necessarily from a pulpit, but proclaiming God's word to the people. And, and, and even just, we could call it, if it's more comfortable, even just talking and sharing the word of God with people. That is the, the kind of compassion that we should have, one that moves us to share God's word with people. Now, I'll be a, a, a little bit bold here. Um, I see the Mennonite people largely as sheep without a shepherd. I, you know, I, I see you as sheep, at least until recently, who, who are without a shepherd. And, and I'm not trying to say anything about myself here, that I'm some kind of great shepherd. Or I'm not trying to say anything about me. But I'm just saying that in large part, you weren't taught the scriptures. When I came here, I saw that like in every area, you just haven't been taught the scriptures. You weren't fed. You weren't taught. And sometimes when you're not being taught, sometimes you don't even recognize that you aren't being fed. You know, when, when all the sheep are skinny, it just seems normal that this is the, this is the kind of, this is how the sheep are, but that's not how they're supposed to be. You don't even know that things should be different. You know, when wolves are, are constantly nipping at the heels, the sheep don't even know that that's not normal. And of course, wolves in scripture represents false teachers who harm the sheep. You know, someone said that the pastor should have two voices, one for the sheep and one for the wolves. And so biblically speaking, and I'm not going to kind of lay out a whole theology about this, but shepherds are called to know the sheep. That's what a shepherd does. They know which sheep are theirs. They feed the sheep. Shepherds are called then to lead the sheep and to guard the sheep or protect the sheep, knowing, feeding, leading, and guarding. That's what a shepherd is called to do. But now as we think about this as a pattern for our own ministry, I just want to ask you some questions. How about you? Think about Jesus' compassion for the people. How do you see the people around you? Think about that. How do you see the people around you? Do you see the people around you? And I don't mean like around you right now, but I just mean the people that you interact with in your life. Do you see them? I looked up some antonyms of compassion, the opposite of compassion, and, and here's some of them. Animosity. Cruelty, hatred, tyranny, or indifference. And I think that last one is very convicting. Just think about that. We're called to be compassionate for the people around us, not indifferent to the people around us. So to be like Christ, we need to care for those around us, and we need to care for them until we are moved to do something about it for them. That's compassionate ministry. That was Jesus' motivation, or at least part of his motivation, and that should be as well part of our motivation as we are called to minister to people around us. And then thirdly here, let's look in verse 37 to the end of chapter 10, verse 5. We're calling this number three, Jesus' method. Jesus' method. Let's just read those verses again so they're in our mind. Starting at verse 37, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew, or Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them. And again, we're going to stop there and not go into the instruction. In brief, Jesus' method was to raise up disciples and train them and equip them and then send them out for ministry. 
And that also should be our strategy. Jesus kind of modeled it for them. He trained them and equipped them. And then he sent them out for ministry. And, and that's, that should be our strategy as well. That should be the church's strategy. We need to raise up compassionate, praying disciples of Jesus Christ who see the need and go out teaching and preaching. In verse 37, Jesus is calling his disciples to take on his concern for the people. He's saying to them, he's saying, lift up your eyes, look around. There's a harvest of people around. There's a catch of men and you are the fishers. There's a a plentiful harvest out there. There's countless sheep without a shepherd. And part of what it means to be called to ministry is to then see the need to see the the potential harvest. Part of what it means to be called to ministry is that you see the lost and you see the struggling believers and you say, wow, I've got to do something about this situation. I've got to do something to help these people. And when you see it, you say, the laborers are few. You say, I I see a lot of indifferent people, but I, I don't see very many compassionate people. And you also say this, the compassionate people I see don't know what they're doing and they aren't feeding the sheep. And so it moves you to do something for the people. Jesus said, the laborers are few. And as I said, this applies especially to those who are called to the ministry. And, and by ministry, I mean eldership, whether that's full-time or, or part-time eldership, whether it's like me, like a, a working elder that, that's my full-time job, or like a lay elder who just cares for people and wants to serve them but works a normal job. But even all of us are called to use our gifts and abilities to serve the Lord in the church. And all of us should have eyes open to see those around us who need Christ, whether they need him for salvation or whether they need him to grow in that salvation. And the first response that Jesus calls us to, that he calls his disciples to, is to pray. Jesus tells his disciples to pray again, verse 38, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Therefore, in other words, because the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few, therefore pray. Pray for laborers, Jesus says. Now at this point, if you think about it, Jesus was the only laborer that there was. Maybe there's a few others in, in Israel at the time that are, that are godly people. Remember, John the Baptist is in jail. And, and so Jesus is almost literally the only laborer. He hasn't sent out his disciples to do anything. It seems like this is fairly early on in his ministry. And so pray for laborers, but it doesn't just say pray. It says pray earnestly. This is kind of a, a pleading request. And it's the kind of request that someone would make if they had an emotional, sympathetic concern for the people who they saw as sheep without a shepherd. If you saw a harvest of people that were harassed and downcast, and you knew that they could be comforted and uplifted, you would you would plead with the Lord of the harvest. You'd say, send out some workers to help the sheep. The, the, the sheep are harassed and helpless. They're downcast. Send some workers out to help those sheep. They're, they're all laying down there struggling and suffering. And so you, there would be this, if you cared about them, there'd be this pleading request to the Lord of the harvest, the, the one who's in charge of the sheep or of the harvest. Now, the Lord of the harvest is the master that's in charge of harvesting the fields. But, but here, the Lord of the harvest refers to God who is sovereign over the harvest of people. And this is actually amazing if you just think about this a little bit. The Lord is able to save people, to make them like Christ, to conform them to the image of his son, and then to take those same people and equip them for ministry and give them a heart of compassion for others and then send them out to labor to reach other people. Do you see that? That, this is what, this is what the, this prayer is. 
This, verse 38 implies that the Lord is able to save people, make them like Christ, conform them to the image of his son, equip them for ministry, give them a heart of compassion for others, and then even send them out. And, and that sending implies kind of whatever support they need so that they're going to be able to do that ministry. And, and that, that then through that, those people are going to be able to reach other people and, and the harvest is going to be brought in. Otherwise, why would we pray for such a thing? Why would Jesus say pray for that if that wasn't all possible? Otherwise, how could the Lord be called the Lord of the harvest? Or how could the Lord send out laborers into his harvest? If God wasn't sovereign in this way, Jesus would have had to say something like, well, uh, hope that some people would be willing to do this because uh, there's not very many laborers out there, but there's nothing I can do to, to raise them up. And so you see how this implies the sovereignty of God in salvation and even in our discipleship that he is able to give us a heart of compassion for people. If, you, if you're here and you're going, man, I am indifferent towards people. Well, the good news is the Lord is able to change your heart and make you compassionate for people. And I, I take great comfort in that. This work is ultimately the Lord's work. It is his harvest Pray to the Lord of the harvest and pray that this Lord sends out laborers into his harvest. The work is ultimately his work, but we are called to pray. And so let me ask you then, Grace Bible Fellowship, and these questions are for me as well. Do you pray for this? Do you plead for workers to be sent out and to help the sheep that are without a shepherd? Do you pray for shepherds who know and lead and feed and protect the sheep? Are you asking God to raise up these kind of shepherds who are going to go out into the harvest? Do you pray for me? Do you pray for my ministry here that it will glorify God and benefit God's people and equip them and teach them and that the gospel will go forth? Do you pray for God to raise up elders in our church, that there would be biblical elders to kind of help in the work and minister and that we would be able through them to bring in a great harvest? And even do you pray for yourself that you would be a part of this work and that the Lord would use you to to participate in this work of the great commission that we are called to? And prayers like that end up being the first step towards being sent out yourself. From the group that Jesus asked to pray, which is presumably a large group of his disciples, he then chose 12 and sent them out into his harvest. And in chapter 10, we're going to see what Jesus told them. And we'll see that what he told them very much applies to our ministry today. I'm looking forward to, to being in the, the, the message, the sermon there in chapter 10, and Lord willing, we'll start that next week. When we pray for laborers, it will often result in us being sent out, in in us being equipped and sent out as well. The Lord is often pleased to answer our own prayers through us. As we pray these prayers, the Lord changes us and then sends us out into the harvest. But what's really important, I think, for us to see here is, is Jesus' strategy for missions and evangelism. And if I could kind of start back in the middle with a, a vision for others. Jesus' strategy starts with this, with this motivation of compassion in the hearts of his people. And we could add here even a, a higher motivation that we should have, which is to glorify God. And that, that recognizing that God is glorified through the work that he does in people, then we, we notice people and, and we desire to help them and we have compassion for them and we want to glorify God by being part of that work. And this motivation, this heart of compassion for people then leads to prayer, earnest prayer that God would send out laborers to help these people that we start to notice. And then such a prayer will, will often be answered in the life of the one who prays and God will begin to grow you and teach you and prepare you and equip you to help others. And the motivation and the prayer will result in you being discipled then and equipped for ministry. And then you're sent to teach others 
and proclaim the gospel. And then, and, and, and so I hope you kind of see how this works. That, that from, from, from one or two people, even just starting with the Lord to the disciples, it, it kind of expands from then as, as people are taught and grow and, and learn to follow Jesus and, and develop that same compassion that he had and that same teaching and proclaiming that he did. And so this is the strategy that God has for missions. And we see the same thing in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I just invite you to turn over there as well. We see this was Paul's strategy as well, and he lays it out just really clearly and briefly for us, succinctly, in uh, 2 Timothy 2, 1 to 3. Paul says to Timothy, who is kind of his disciple, Paul says, you then, my child... Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And then he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And so Paul discipled Timothy, who is to pass on what he learned to other faithful men who would then be able to go on and do the same for others. And so love for others combined with an understanding that they must be taught God's word. It's not just a, an emotional love, but it's a love that then goes, I'm going to, I'm going to teach these people to follow the Lord. And, and from there, it just kind of perpetuates really from all the way from Jesus's passing it on to the 12, all the way down to our generation. Paul discipled Timothy who passed it on to others. And that's exactly what we ourselves are called to do. Jesus' method for ministry then is to love people, proclaim the gospel to them, teach them to love others and to proclaim the gospel and teach them how to teach and it perpetuates. Love so deeply that you are even willing to suffer, Paul says, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. That's our strategy and that's really what, what we're aiming to do here at Grace Bible Fellowship, to equip people for ministry so that they can pass it on. And that's how we shepherd God's people. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for this strategy. We thank you for this pattern for ministry that you've given us. I think all of us would, would probably recognize that, that, that we need more compassion in our lives. Pray that for myself, Father. Pray that for all of us, that we would be a compassionate and caring people that we would see people the way that Jesus does and that we would be moved by that compassion to minister to them in the way that you have commanded, not just to, to be compassionate towards them, but to actually go and teach and preach the word that we know actually helps and equips and that this would, would spread from here, Father. We pray that we would take this strategy that you have given us to heart and that we would see it successfully multiply and grow, starting at Grace Bible Fellowship, but even from our midst, Father, we pray that you would raise up laborers to minister here and even minister across the world. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.